want us to start thinking this morning about uh, before and afters in life that change things. There, there's a lot of them. I've, I've reflected on that a lot this week. I, th- I think there's just a lot of before and afters that make a huge change in our life. So I just want to share a few with you this morning. High schoolers, if you're here. So high schoolers, before driving, after driving, right? Before high school graduation, after high school graduation. College kids, if you're in the room, um, before college graduation and spring, uh, before college graduation, there were spring breaks and Xbox tournaments, right? After college graduation, there's no more spring break. Sorry to break that to you. Before marriage and after marriage, right? You think for one before, then you have to think for two. How about before children and after children? Before children, you slept. (laughs) and, And after kids, you don't. Before children, you never thought you would negotiate with someone under two feet tall. And now you do. How about one more for parents? Before potty training? After potty training. You know I'm right. Changes things. How about before cancer and after cancer? What about before the death of a spouse or a child and after the death of a spouse or a child or a parent? So much of our lives can be broken down into this before and after paradigm. I'm sure you have some going through your head right now. And the Bible tells us there is another before and after in our lives, and it's the most important before and after we'll ever encounter. It's the before and after of our spiritual lives. It's the before and the after of following Jesus. And so the text we're going to look at today can be broken down into this very familiar paradigm of before and after. And so if you have a Bible with you today, I'm going to encourage you to take that out and open to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It's probably about two-thirds of the way back in your Bible. Ephesians 2. I encourage you this morning. We have finally made it to chapter 2. We're there. We made it. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Please help yourself to those. If you don't own a Bible, take it home. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. If you're using a Bible in the seat back in front of you, Ephesians chapter 2 can be found on page 814. 814. To to bring us all up to speed while you're finding Ephesians chapter 2, we're in the New Testament book of Ephesians, And we're learning about our identity in Christ. We're learning to identify the lies that we tell ourselves every day. We all do this. And instead, replacing those lies with the truth of what God says about us in his word. And this is so important. If you're following along in your notes, this is so important because being convinced of our identity in Christ affects the way we live. It affects the way we live. It changes the way we live. And today, we're going to come to this scripture that shows us that our life changes, our identity changes the moment we trust Christ. The moment we trust Christ. But I I need to give you fair warning. We need to look at who we were before following Jesus so we can appreciate who we are 
on this side of following Jesus. So we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is who we were before Christ. Would you read this with me in the first box on your notes? It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So as we begin, look at these. I I love English, so I'm just going to share some words with you. I want you to, to look at certain words like you, all, like the rest, we. They're all plural. And so what Paul is saying is that everyone who's ever lived, everyone in this room, you and me, this is who we were before Christ. It's a level playing field at the cross. This is who we were. Notice also the verbs in this are past tense verbs. They are were, used to live, followed. Pay attention to that because this is who we were, not who we are. And Paul tells us that before Christ, we had three things in common. If you're following on your notes, the first thing we all had in common is that we are dead in our sinful nature. We are dead in our sinful nature. And to understand this just a little bit better, we need to go back to the beginning of the world because God created a perfect world. No sin, no suffering, no shame, no guilt, no fear, no death. He created a perfect world, and he gave Adam and Eve one rule to follow. One rule. And it's in Genesis 2.17. You can see it on the screen. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And we flip over to the next chapter in chapter 3, and we see that they did, in fact, eat of the one tree that they couldn't eat, and it brought death. Two types. It brought physical death. They would now die. They were created not to die. I just did a funeral this last week, and it is so foreign to me still to look at a dead body because we were not created to die. And so it brought physical death. They would die, but it also brought spiritual death. And when I say spiritual death, I mean they were separated from God. The relationship was broken. Adam's sin resulted in spiritual death, a change of his nature. He went from being naturally perfect in every way, including a perfect relationship with God, to being totally separated from God, dead in his sin. And that bad choice didn't just affect Adam, it affected us. And so in Romans Chapter 5, verse 12, the same Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the Ephesians writes these words, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Six verses later, he says these words, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. This is a mystery. I, I can't quite explain this to you. If I had hours, we could sit down and talk about it. But through one man, 
Sin entered the world, and because we are descendants of Adam, we are born with the nature that Adam possessed after he sinned. So consequently, we are born with a sinful nature that separates us from God. And in this deadness and sinful nature, it's just natural for us to sin. It's just in our hearts. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this, you are born with a disobedient, sinful nature. You don't learn to sin. Nobody has to teach you. Nobody has to sit down and say, here's how you do it. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. I never sat them down in a chair and said, here's how you say no to everything I say. (laughs) I, I didn't have to do this. I didn't have to say, hey, guys, here's a word for you, and you should say it the rest of your life. Mine. Hey, guys, can I teach you how to be disobedient and disrespect me and roll your eyes and stomp off when I ask you to do something? Hey, guys, here's a red Sharpie. Whenever you feel like it, go color on my couch. (laughs) I never had that conversation. They just did it. They're wired to sin, and so am I. Nobody sat me down and taught me how to make bad decisions. I just made bad decisions all the time. I did what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted, and I didn't have to be taught it. And it's because I have a sinful nature and it's natural to sin. Listen, guys, we don't become liars when we lie. We lie because we're liars. We don't become thieves when we steal. We steal because we're thieves. And if you're following in your notes, committing sinful acts does not make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinful by nature. Did did you catch that paradigm? Our, Our acts of sin don't make us spiritually dead and separate us from God, our acts of sin, our bad decisions confirm that we're already separated from God and sinful. We are born with a sinful nature, and it's natural to sin. But Paul goes on. He tells us that before Christ, if you're following in your notes, number two, we were disobedient and enslaved to sin. We were disobedient and enslaved to sin. You'll notice in uh, verses 2 and 3, you're going to see the word followed in there two times. Uh, That's a really weak translation of this word in the English language. If you go to the original Greek, this word followed actually means mastered by, enslaved to, and under the control of something. And what Paul is saying to us is that before following Jesus, we lived in such a way that we were mastered and controlled by sin. We were enslaved to sin, and we couldn't do anything about it. We loved it, even when it made us miserable. How many of you have said this, I'll never do that again, and then the next weekend you went and did it again? 
How many of you said, I don't want to get angry like that again. I I don't want to talk like that again. And you just couldn't control it, and you did it again and again and again. And it made you feel horrible, and you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't fix yourself. You couldn't try hard enough. We were enslaved to sin. Verse 2 tells us that we love the world and all that it offered, even though it was under the influence of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Insert the word devil, Satan. We were under his influence, and we may not have come out and said it this way, but by the way we lived, we liked the devil's ways better than we liked God's ways. We were under his influence. And then in verse 3, we see that we gratified the desires of our flesh. And our flesh doesn't mean our, our skin here. It, it, it's not our, not our bodies, per se. If you're following in your notes, our flesh is our desire to be God instead of under God. One quote I read this week sums this up really well. It says, The flesh is the aspect of your heart, the sinful aspect of your whole self that wants to live a life independent of God, that wants to be your own God and your own king and your own savior. And that is the desire and the craving that we followed, that we were mastered by and enslaved to before following Christ. We were by nature sinners, separated from God, dead in our sin, disobedient to the values of God, following the ways of the world, enslaved to our sinful thoughts that led to sinful actions. What I love about studying Paul is that he he really likes to sugarcoat things. Yo, Paul, we, we get it, man. We are dead. We get it. Okay? Move on now. But Paul thought it important enough to tell us one more thing that we had in common. And if you're following your notes, it's, it's number three. We were deserving of God's wrath. We were deserving of God's wrath. And to understand the, the magnitude of this, we need to understand wrath or the righteous anger of God. Because I think sometimes what we do is we say, well, how is a God of wrath also a, a God of love? Isn't that incompatible? And it, it's not. Because if God does not have wrath and justice over sin, then salvation isn't needed. One early church father wrote, if God can look at sin and injustice in this world and not get angry, he's not much of a God. We have this holy, perfect God, and he cannot be in the presence of sin, and he doesn't just sweep it under the rug. Many of us think that the God of the Old Testament was this God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament's like Mr. Rogers. And it's just a wrong perspective. What we have now is this time of patience where the door of mercy is open wide and we can walk into this grace and be saved. But the coming wrath of God is worse than anything we read about in the Old Testament. I was reading a, a Lent devotional leading up to Easter this year, and one chapter was called The Cup. If you remember, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, uh, went to the garden and prayed to his father, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And the cup he was talking about was the cup of God's wrath. This quote that stopped me in my tracks read this way. This cup contains the vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin, 
And we discover in Scripture that it's intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. It's your cup and it's my cup. In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind, like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of Mount St. Helens concentrated in a coffee mug. It's no wonder that when Jesus stares into the cup of wrath, he stumbles to the ground and he sweats drops of blood. What Jesus recoils from in the garden is not the anticipation of physical pain associated with the crucifixion. It's a pain infinitely greater. It's the agony of being abandoned by his father because the sin of the world would be placed on him and his father could not be in the presence of sin. Friends, what... What happened at the cross was not primarily about nails being driven into Jesus' hands and feet. It wasn't, it wasn't entirely physical. The, the cross was about the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin being placed on Jesus. And in that moment, when Jesus hung on the cross, all of our sin was placed on him, and the righteous wrath and justice of God that we deserved came down like a flood on Jesus. And he drank the cup of wrath, and we get the cup of grace. He did it for us, and we didn't deserve it. We deserved death and enslavement and wrath, and he took it. He took it. And this, this is the lie we believe. So important. If you are following on your notes, this is the lie we believe. If you are in Christ, the enemy wants us to believe that that is still who we are. He wants us to believe that that's still who we are. We are dead in our sin, and sin is still in control of our lives. And all too often, we believe this lie that we're dead, that we're enslaved to our desires. And when we mess up, when we mess up, I guarantee, I bet you could even finish this sentence. When we mess up and when we sin, the thought goes through our mind, that's just who I am. I'll always be that way. I can't change. That's just who I am. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not who you are. That is who you were. And now we get to hear the good news of who we are in Christ. But before we move on to the, the good news, I don't, I don't want to move on before saying something that needs to be said. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, oh my goodness, am I thankful you're here. God has you here for a reason, and I believe he wants to speak to you. There's a purpose that you're here. But if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, the lie that we just looked at is a truth for you. It's a present reality. It is a present reality. And there's a different lie that I believe the enemy whispers to you. And it sounds like this. You're not that bad. You're a good person. You do good things. You even go to church sometimes. You don't need saving. Saving from what? 
I can't convince you otherwise, but I pray. I pray you would listen not to what I say, but to what God says about your identity. Because God doesn't say you're sick in your sins. He says you're dead in your sins. And he doesn't say you need self-improvement. He says you need a resurrection. And the good news that I can offer you this morning is that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that is the good news that we get to look at now. So the truth we need to believe, if you would read this truth with me in the second gray box on your notes, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. On the count of three, full voice, we're going to say, but God. One, two, three. But God. One more time, full voice. One, two, three. But God. But God did something. And pay attention, whenever you see the words, but God in the Bible, something incredible usually follows, for good or bad. But in this case, it is incredibly good. It's incredibly good. And what we're told is that, but God, if you're following in your notes, number one, made us alive with Christ. He made us alive. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute and explain what that means. But I want to share with you his motive for doing that. It was his mercy. It's this beautiful word that means we don't get what we deserve. And and we're told here, he is rich in mercy. We were just told what we deserve in verses 1 to 3. And we're told in his mercy, we don't get that. And in his mercy, he loved us. Now, I think what happens is we're like, God loves me. That's cool. That's pretty good. God loves you. He loves you. Have you thought about that? You are loved. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans 5, 8, would you read these words with me? It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know how much God loves you? I remember holding my newborn son on Christmas night. He was born earlier that day. And I remember this thought went through my mind on Christmas night. God, I would never send him to die for people that don't deserve it. I'm not giving him up. And God looked at his son. But God looked at his son and said, I love these people so much. And I, I love my children so much that I will send him to take the wrath in their place. For someone here today, you just need to hear this. You are loved by the Father. You're loved. And in his love, he made us alive with Christ. He made us alive. And what made alive in Christ means is that when we trust Jesus, we no longer have this sinful nature. 
Remember, we're born with this sinful nature. When we trust Christ, we are made alive with him. We no longer have a sinful nature that lives inside of you. God did not clean up your old self. He crucified it. And so if you're following along in your notes, we are given a completely new nature. Completely new nature. And instead of this sinful nature now living inside of you, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. The Spirit of Jesus lives inside of you. I'm going to ask you to turn your notes over to the back to a diagram. We're going to use this a lot this morning. We're going to be flipping back and forth. Just give you fair warning. Steve used this several weeks ago, and I I found it so helpful. But what I want us to see is that when we become followers of Jesus, we cross the line of faith, right? We, We cross the line of faith, which is represented by the cross, and we go from being at zero, not saved, dead in our sin nature, enslaved in sin, under God's wrath. We go to the fact that we have been saved from our sin nature and the penalty of sin, and we are justified. It is just as if we had never sinned. We go from being totally separated from God right here now and forever to being brought back together with God right here now and forever. But in addition to that, we now are sensitive to the things of God. The Holy Spirit now speaks to us across the ticker of our minds. We can now respond to God. And in addition, here's a big change. We don't like sin. When we sin, we know it because the Holy Spirit convicts us. And when we sin, we confess, God, I agree with you that was a sin. I repent of it. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus because I'm a new creation. That's not who we are are anymore. We're incapable of enjoying sin. And all that happens, all of it happens the moment you trust Christ. We're going to get better at walking with him. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this happens the moment you trust Christ. You go from completely dead to completely alive. And so we're told our identity is that we're made alive with Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, we're told, and raised us up with him, God raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you're following in your notes, the second thing God did for us when we crossed the line of faith was that he raised us up and he seated us with Christ. Raised us up and seated us with Christ. Now, I think the Ephesians would have understood this metaphor perfectly. They would have known that if you were a conquering hero, and if you had conquered on the battlefield and you had achieved glory for your people, then when you came back home, When you came back to the capital city, you were given the greatest place of honor possible, which was at the right hand of the throne. You sat at the right hand of the throne because you had conquered. It was the place of highest honor. 
So the Ephesians would have understood that Jesus Christ, because of all he accomplished, was raised from the dead and taken into heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he has been given the greatest place of honor in the entire universe, the most honorable seat in the universe. They would have got that. But I wonder what they would have thought when they read the words, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him. Notice again, past tense. What in the world does that mean? It can't mean, we, mean we've been raised from the dead because we haven't, at least last I checked. It can't mean we're literally seated there because we're not, we're, we're here. So it must mean that since we're not literally seated there, we're legally seated there. And it all happened at the moment we were saved. We went from being dead in the grave to raised up in Christ and seated with him at the right hand of the Father. And when you believe in Christ, all your sins are so hidden, they are so covered, and you are treated as if you had done everything Jesus Christ has ever done. And now, listen, God delights in you, and he honors you, and he accepts you, and he rejoices over you the same way he does his son. You are seated with him. And this provides us unbelievable assurance of who we are in Christ. Unbelievable assurance. Do you know why Jesus is sitting down? Because his work is finished. Do you know why we're seated? Because our work is finished. Not the living our everyday lives and becoming more like Jesus, but we don't have to earn being saved. We don't have to try so hard. We can rest that when we trust in what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, we go from being dead to alive, raised up, and seated. It, it happened in a moment. Can you see how this before and after makes all the difference in the world? It changes everything. And then Paul concludes in verse 7 by saying that we are living evidences of this God who has showered on us his grace and his kindness, and it will be evident to others in the coming ages. We will live in such a manner that we are changed people because we have a new identity in Christ. It will change the way we live. And so the question remains, Okay, we know we have this identity and it changed our status, but does it really make a difference right now? And so I want to talk to you about how knowing our identity, that we are made alive, raised up, and seated, changes our lives right here. So would you flip back over to the, the diagram on the back side of your notes? I told you we're going to be doing some flipping. This is where we're really going to get going. So, so far, right, we have looked at Zero, before Christ. We're not saved, dead in sin, enslaved in sin, and under God's wrath. Cross the line of faith in a moment. We have been saved from our sinful nature, from the penalty of sin, and we are justified. But here is where it gets interesting. This is where we do our living. Number two is where, where we do our living. 
We are being saved. We're becoming more and more like Jesus, which the fancy word for that is sanctification. We are becoming more and more like Jesus, and we also have power over the power of sin. We are saved from the power of sin. And so I want to talk to you about two specific ways that knowing our identities changes our lives in number two here. On your notes, number one, we now have power over sin. We now have power over sin. With God's help, we can choose not to sin. We can choose not to sin. In Romans 6, 6, Paul would write these words. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We now have control over the power of sin in our lives. Remember earlier, we said, before Christ, we had a sinful nature that lived inside of us and we couldn't say no. Couldn't say no. We continually gave in to our cravings. We now can say no. It is possible, with God's help, to choose not to sin because we're no longer enslaved to the power of sin. I want to get really, really practical here. So here's how this works. And I'm going to share this with you. And this is going to sound so incredibly simple. And it is so incredibly hard. And it all happens in about five seconds all day, every day. We can do it with God's help, but we've got to train for it. And so the first thing to, to take over the power of sin in our lives, the first thing is we need to play defense. We need to play defense. We need to believe our identity and recognize temptation when it attacks. We need to be convinced of our identity. That's the entire reason we're doing this Ephesians series is so that we will be convinced of who we are in Christ because we need to know who we are in Christ if we want to live for Christ. We need to be convinced of that and then we need to be able to recognize temptation when it comes our way. And I need to make a distinction for you about temptation. I'm going to go back to this. Before Christ... We had a sinful nature, sin lived inside of us, and temptation was inside of us, and it came out. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, you have been saved from your sin nature. You no longer have a sin nature. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Sin and temptation do not live inside of you, and temptation will always come from an external stimulus. It will always come from an external stimulus. It's going to be something that you see, smell, touch, taste, or feel, and then it enters the mind, and we have a decision to make right there. It doesn't live inside of you. You are a new creation. Your old self has been crucified. And that means we need to be paying attention to what we expose ourselves to what we hear, what we see, where we go, what environments we, we frequent. It also means we need to know ourselves and know the triggers that set off our decisions to sin. Because it's in that moment where we have a choice to make. And so we play defense. We're, we, we believe, we're convinced of our identity in Christ. That's not who I am anymore. I'm new. And then we recognize the temptation that comes at us. And it's here we go on the offense. If you're following in your notes, 
We replace the temptation with the truth of God. Ephesians 6, 17 says, His word is our sword. We do war with it. This is where spending time in the Bible is so important because knowing what God says about your identity makes all the difference. Jesus used this. He was baptized and led into the desert where he was tempted by Satan three different times, and every time he used God's word to refute the temptation. He knew who he was. And so maybe for you, this is what's helped me tremendously, maybe for you, you find a verse in Scripture that speaks to your new identity, and every time a temptation comes, you repeat that verse. You repeat it. Here's a verse that I say all the time. I wish I said it more. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Maybe you need to find a verse to replace the temptation with the truth of God. And this plays out in a moment, and it's why we need to train for it and not wait until it happens to us. So here's a couple of examples of how this plays out. The other night, I was having a conversation with my children. And so I know that a trigger for me, a temptation for me that comes from an external stimulus is certain words they say and certain actions they do. And so they said those certain things or they did those certain things and that temptation came to me and it's in that moment I have a decision to make. Now, I could have said, Brian, You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Remember, don't exasperate your children, but raise them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And I could have gone over to them and said, hey, guys, let's not talk like that. It would have been great if I had done that. It would have been great. Um, But what I chose to do is act on the temptation and say, yeah, buddy, I'm going to power up. They power up. I'm going to power up, they power up, and I'll just let you figure out how the rest of the night went. (laughs) But I had a decision to make in a moment, and I made the wrong one, and I sinned. How about when we're driving and somebody cuts us off? Happens in a moment. Temptation, external stimulus comes into the mind. I can either say, you're a new creation. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm going to shine the light of Christ and not do anything right now. Or I'm going to do something. (laughs) But it happens in a moment. And we either choose to sin or we walk on as being made alive in Christ. How about um, about an addiction? External stimulus. You want another drink. You want another hit. You want another website. And it is in that moment you can say to yourself, that is not who I am anymore. I can make a decision to not give in to that. I will let no unwholesome thing come into my mind. And you can turn off the computer or walk away, or you can choose to sin. But you don't have to choose to sin. You don't have to. This happens all day, every day, and it's why we need to train for it instead of wait until it happens. And so in life groups this week, you're going to be given the opportunity to practice this. You're going to review your week and talk about those moments of temptation and the decision you made, and if you messed up, how you could have done it differently. We can learn a lot from our mistakes. If you're not in a life group, you can do this at home. You can practice this. Review your week. Where did that happen? 
But friends, we've got to live with the conviction that we were once dead and now we are alive and that is not who we are anymore. We have the power to say no to sin. We really do. But because we're humans, we are going to mess up. 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're going to mess up. So the final thing I want to share with you is how this identity can be such a difference maker when you do sin and when you do mess up. And it's the last thing on your notes. It's number two. It says, when we do sin, remind yourself of your identity in Christ. Remind yourself of your identity in Christ. And so last time, we're going to flip back over to the diagram because this is what we do. This is what we do. We live here in number two. We are being saved from the power of sin. We are growing into the likeness of Jesus, but so we're still going to mess up. So when we mess up, this is what we do. This is what we do. We go from right here, and we go all the way back there. And this is where we feel like we're not saved and we question if we've been made alive in Christ, and we utter those words, that's just who I am. I guess I can never change. We do that to ourselves. We convince ourselves that we're still dead in sin, and that still, sin still has power over us. But get this. When we battle with sin... We're not in battle with our old self. Our old self has been eradicated. When we have a temptation and we choose to sin, we battle against powers and principalities and the power of sin. We don't battle against our old self. We're not like half new and half old. So don't go back here on yourself. When you mess up, remind yourself who you are in Christ. You have been saved from sin nature, from the penalty of sin. You are made alive, raised up, and seated. Don't live beneath your privilege. You are a child of the Most High God, and you've been made alive with Christ. Remind yourself of your identity. Can you see how important it is to know our identity? Because if we don't, we'll fall into these patterns of sin. We'll be enslaved and mastered by our sin. And here's what we do when we go back here. When we forget who we are. It feels miserable. Instead of believing that we are saints who sometimes sin, we convince ourselves that we're just low-down, dirty sinners who will never change. And the sobering thought that is, if we stay stuck in a sin pattern, it's because we choose to. You have the power over sin. And so to close today, I just want to read some scripture over you to remind you of who you are in Christ. And after each one of these, I'm going to give you just a moment to think about this scripture Ask God, what are you saying to me in this verse? Remind me who I am. Remind me. And so I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles, put your notes away. Take a deep breath. We're going to relax for a minute. I want to invite you to close your eyes and sit under these truths of who you are in Christ.
Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Second Corinthians 5:17 says, "If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come." Romans 8.1, it's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God, thank you for loving us. Even when we didn't deserve it, you loved us. Thank you for making us alive, raised up, and seated with Christ. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would be convinced of who they are and that it would change the way they live. And God, more than anything this morning, we simply want to say thank you. Thank you. We're a grateful people gathered to worship a great God and a great Savior. It's in Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said.